Is what you're living for worth dying for? Is what you're living for worth dying for? Pray with me. Lord, we are grateful that you present yourself to us in the words of your scripture, your truth. And as we endeavor now to sit under those words, reveal yourself, open our hearts, unstop our ears, help us to see all it is that you want us to see about you, about us. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you might have noticed that in his writing this account of the early church, we're in the book of Acts, right, that the author of this book, Dr. Luke, has a habit of moving the reader rather deftly between issues within the church and issues without. Last week, we read about an occurrence in the early church, a threat to its unity, that came from within, the complaint from the Hellenist uh, widows who were being neglected in the daily distribution of the food. And we saw then how it was beautifully handled by the church. This week, a threat comes again from those opposed to the church. And its end, actually, in human terms at least, is not nearly as desirable or winsome as what we saw last week. The remainder of uh, Acts chapter 6 into Acts 7, portions of 8, center around a man named Stephen, who is a fellow about whom we know relatively little. Stephen was a deacon before such men were called deacons. So if we were going to be accurate, we would just say that Stephen was one of the Seven servants chosen by the church to distribute the bread. But more than that, uh, Stephen was a disciple of Jesus, not just with a good reputation, but full of the Holy Spirit and full of power. And so he did more than hand out bread. The scripture says that he was basically in the same business as the apostles. He was in the miracle working business. Like every Christian in those days, Stephen was a relatively new convert, but at the same time he demonstrated an extensive knowledge of the scripture, of the, what we call the Old Testament now, uh, especially those portions of scripture it seems that foreshadowed and foretold the coming of Jesus the Messiah. So it seems to us that Stephen himself was a Hellenist, that is a Greek-speaking Jew, prior to his coming to faith in Christ. He was, if you're following along, in verse 8, he was full of grace and power, doing great wonders and signs among the people. He was doing more than waiting tables. He was performing miracles, and he was an articulate, also an articulate and a compelling preacher. We could safely say that Stephen is an instrument in the master's hands, that he is fully devoted to the Lord, that he has surrendered his life to God, and he has incomparable wisdom that comes from God, and power from on high is flowing out of Stephen. He's committed to doing the Lord's work. He's committed to doing good, 
And he's on the front lines of gospel ministry in Jerusalem. Now, we have seen previously already, we will see it again, that when the gospel advances, resistance intensifies. Okay? The enemy's not interested in Christians who aren't being Christian or churches that aren't doing church. He doesn't have to mess with them. But when the gospel advances, when the God's truth is preached and inroads are made, spiritual uh, war is happening, resistance intensifies. So one might expect when attempting to do great things for God to encounter some pushback from the enemies of God. You should expect that, okay, Christian? If you want to attempt great things for God, you should expect some resistance. As one preacher put it, he said, if, if our... Uh, if it ever comes to the point where the world has no problem with your preaching the gospel, there's likely a problem with the gospel you're preaching. Okay, The world's going to have a problem with it. Faithful Christians don't have to go about looking for trouble. Trouble's going to find us if we're being faithful to the word. Okay, Jesus said it was going to happen. In this world, you will have trouble. He said they, this world hates me, so it's bound to hate you. He could not have been more clear about these things. The claims of Jesus are a stumbling block to a lot of people. They are a rock of offense. Jesus himself said, I'm a rock of offense. So it is predictable that as Stephen perpetuates the reclaiming ministry of Christ, he encounters opposition. Then some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. We saw a little while ago the high priest rose up in chapter 5, 17. He rose up against the apostles. And here again, these men likewise are not about to take the preaching of the gospel sitting down. They're not about to take the, the challenge that the gospel presents to their beliefs and their traditions sitting down. So they rise up and they take issue with Stephen. But we see this. It is to no avail in verse 10. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And the reason that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking is a living example of what Jesus said was, would happen to his disciples. Luke chapter 21, verse 15, For I will give you a mouth. This is in the context of Jesus saying, You don't need to worry about things, but you can expect some tough times. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. This is exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. It's happening with Stephen. Uh, his eloquence is from the Lord. His eloquence is from on high, and we should take heart in this, beloved. If you are hesitant, for instance, to share the gospel, and a lot of people are, but the reason that we are hesitant to share the gospel is not because we don't believe the gospel, it's because we're worried about how we're going to do it. We're worried about the words. We're worried that we're going to stumble over ourselves. And listen, you've, you've been here long enough. You already know it's no big deal to stumble over yourself. It, it, it happens and it's okay, right? It's not that big a deal. But look, when it comes to sharing the gospel, you can, you can be assured that that's God's business. Okay? It's not actually about you. It's not about me. It's God's business, and he wants to get that business done. And I'm not saying that you should be lazy and not care about it, but I am telling you this. Don't worry about it. The Lord will give you the words. The Lord will give you the wisdom. You will know what to say, or you will know when to stop saying it. That's what God does. That's what he's done here for Stephen. 
Now the psalmist, Psalm 81, verse 10 says this, Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. So God is saying, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Now that, that context of that is not exactly about speech. It's really about the abundant provision of God to the Israelites. Like, what's your problem? Why do you have a lack of faith? All you need to do is open your mouth and, and I'll fill it. I've fed you. I've led you. I've given you everything you need. But that's exactly the same message that I'm sharing here. You don't need to worry about what you're going to say. Open your mouth and let God fill it with his wisdom. He can put food in your mouth. He can put the words in your mouth. That is what's going on here for Stephen. No one can dispute Stephen because the wisdom of God is in him. So the critics, because they're unable to prevail against this man now in a fair fight, in the arena of ideas and ideals and conversation, they just cannot get a leg up on Stephen, and, and, and they cannot stop what he's trying to do. So they do what you do when you're losing a fight. You cheat. They, they resort to deceit. They resort to backroom dealing, okay? They secretly instigate some people to speak lies, about Stephen, who was innocent of those lies, of course, they intentionally distort and falsely report what he's claiming. In law terms, we say that is to suborn perjury. There's actually a title for it, right? That it is to enlist another for the purpose of making false statements, of giving false testimony. These detractors appeal to what they believe their listeners value. They appeal to Moses, and they appeal to the temple and to the law, and they brashly assert that Stephen is a threat to these things, that if he is left unchecked, he will change things. Did you catch that? In the, in the, he's, he will change traditions. Exactly. Those are fighting words in established institutions, right? Those are fighting words. in What do you mean you're going to change something? You know the answer to the question, how many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb, right? The answer is change. That's the answer. It has been rightly observed, I think, though, that people don't fear change as much as they fear loss. Change really does often represent some sort of loss or perceived loss, which is, which is why those who believe they stand to lose will always oppose it. The accusers of Stephen are really not at all concerned with the veracity of his claims. Is, is what he's telling us true or not? They don't care. And they cannot overcome the persuasiveness of his speech or his arguments. All they want to do is preserve life the way they like it so they can have it the way they want it. They can hold on to the power that they have. They can hold on to the status that suits them. They can, they can hold on to the orthodoxy that benefits them. And so they lie. They lie and come up with a scheme to get a lot of people to believe the lies. They stirred up the people Acts 6.12, and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. These, this verse now describes, uh, Luke always seems to write in subtle ways. You have to really dig in to, to grasp what he's saying, because this is subtle but significant, a change in the general atmosphere of Jerusalem. 
And it indicates to us that the scales are beginning to tip in favor of the persecutors, in favor of those who now would oppose a church. Okay? Prior to this, the elders and the scribes were sort of, um, they were riled up, but they couldn't get the crowds riled up because the crowds loved the Christians. Remember, they went to get, get the apostles, but they had to be careful about that because they, they, they knew the crowds might rise up and stone them. But here we see for the first time the people are stirred up. Stephen's opponents have been successful in their campaign of deceit and their false witnesses that are willing to swear to these lies and they're trying to put Stephen out of the evangelizing business. And yet as Stephen stood before the council, no one could not notice his face looked like that of an angel. Which is a way of saying, right, that he was reflecting some of God's glory. And he was reflecting some of God's glory having been with God, being with God, God in him. God is in him, God is on him. So he's reflecting God's glory with the face of an angel. And in truth, you know, we all reflect something. Think about that if you would. We all reflect something. The question is what or who? Stephen's countenance in these moments reflected his faith, his God. Even with so much at stake, he was still at peace. There was, there was a calm about him. And maybe you wonder, I think you probably should, why wouldn't any of us? How could that be? I mean, what do you think that you would be reflecting if, if you were falsely accused of something and you were facing death because of it? A lot of people are testifying falsely against you, and, and if they get their way, you're going to die. How do you, th what would you reflect? Yeah, panic. The answer to how Stephen could so calmly face injustice and this threat to his life, friend, is that he had given it up well before this moment. So we think of martyrdom, we think of the martyrdom of Stephen, and we think, well, at the time that he is stoned, he's giving up his life. But I want to suggest to you that he gave his life up long before. He gave it to God so that God could do with it what he pleased. And God could do whatever he decided was good. It takes some pressure off, don't you think? When we not only acknowledge that we are not our own, but we actually think and live that way. <laughs> I mean, we'll all read 1 Corinthians and go, you are not your own, you're purchased. Oh, yes, we believe that. But to actually think and live as if it's true. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. Jesus bought us. He can do with us whatever he wants, and it will be right and it will ultimately be good. Jesus, my Lord, will love me forever. From him, no power of evil can sever. That's what Stephen's standing on. It's no evil that's going to separate me from Jesus Christ. Jesus, my Lord, will love me forever. From him, no power of evil can sever. He gave his life to ransom my soul. Now I belong to him. Sound familiar? It's an old hymn. Now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me, not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. 
We have been bought by Christ. We belong to Him. Our life is His. His life is lived through us. Galatians 2.20, that's the way it works. And when that is true, when that is really true, like functionally true, not just mentally true, but functionally true, we absolutely can be confident in and content with whatever God's will is for us. It is our lot. It is our portion. It is divinely distributed. The accusations have been made against Stephen, and the high priest asked him, are these things so? And Stephen gave an answer. He gave a long answer. He gave, he gave an answer. It's the longest speech recorded in the book of Acts, which is a book of many speeches, so that's saying something. <laughs> And in this response, we're not going to go verse by verse through that speech, but I definitely encourage you to read through Acts chapter 7 in your free time, maybe this afternoon while this sermon is still a little bit fresh. Um, in his response, Stephen demonstrates not only his knowledge of redemptive history, but his orthodoxy. He reveres the patriarchs. He praises Moses. He knows how the temple came to be. All this stuff that they're accusing him of, he's just, he's just refuting that. Like, no, I don't think that. No, I don't believe that. Take a look at that speech. And he speaks about God, God who makes himself known to people in miraculous ways, God who, who sends rescuers and God who sends redeemers to his people, the people he loves. And he notes how often those people rejected those rescuers. How often those people rejected God's pleas to help them. What happened to Jesus, he's going to conclude, is just more of the same. It's a recurring theme in Israel. It's a recurring theme to reject the prophets. And so what happened to Jesus, so is what's about to happen to Stephen. They're going to reject him, even though he's appealing to them. Well, he does conclude his speech with an indictment. And he cements the solidarity at that point between his accusers and the long line of Israelites through the ages who have resisted the offers of God to do what is right and to be saved. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. The end result of Stephen's speech is the wrath of his hearers. They're enraged. They're angry beyond words. They gnash their teeth. Have you ever been that angry where your just teeth are grinding and your neck muscles are sticking out. You're gonna, you just can imagine this. These guys are livid. Livid. And Stephen is unfazed because he's told the truth. And he's answered the accusations. 
And while his enemies ponder his fate, God graciously assures him with a heavenly sight. Acts 7, verse 55. But he, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. You know, normally when Jesus is described in heaven, he's sitting. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And every priest stands daily, Hebrews 10, 11, and 20, at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Colossians 3, 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Ephesians 1, 20, speaking of Jesus, the Apostle Paul writes, Raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. We read about Jesus. We read about him, the, the ascended Jesus, sitting down. Scriptures depict our triumphant Lord as having finished the work. Right? He's done it. And now he is seated. But in this text, as Stephen gazes into heaven, he sees Jesus standing. He's standing. The king is standing alive and well. And, and he's standing as if to welcome Stephen. You're coming this way, brother. You're coming this way. Somebody wrote, Jesus always stands with those who stand with him. Hear that? Jesus always stands with those who stand with him. And he gave this courageous man on the verge of death, a vision of the glory that awaited him. And God is so good to give us what we need when we need it. Doesn't give it to us before very often. Always gives us what we need, but what we, when we really need it, that's when he shows up. And this is what God has done for Stephen. He gives his faithful followers what we need when we need it. And Stephen said, behold, <laughs> it's going to get worse for Stephen. He said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The Son of Man is Jesus, a title he used on occasion, right, to refer to himself. And so did the prophet Daniel, by the way. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given, listen, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is the Son of Man standing before Stephen. And he sees Jesus. And Jesus is alive. And that's a problem for the accusers. That's a problem for those Sadducees, especially who hated the idea of the resurrection and didn't believe in it. And Jesus is occupying this place, this sacred place at the right hand of God. 
a place of power, a place of honor. Jesus is honored by God. And he's in that place because he is God. And that's when the crowd goes into a frenzy and, and cries out. And they, the Bible says they stopped their ears. You know, sometimes it's not that people can't hear the truth. It's that they won't hear the truth. It's not that they can't hear it. It's that they won't hear it. Some people are determined not to hear the truth. This is an example of what um, author Greg Beale calls sensory organ malfunction. <laughs> he says, those who worship idols become like the idols they worship, deaf and blind. The crowd rushes at Steve and they drag him out of the city and they proceed to stone him to death. One of the Jewish leaders who was present at whose feet the angry people laid their clothes was a man named Saul and he heartily approved of the stoning and he was a persecutor of the church and he was happy to see Christians killed but by the grace of God he would not always be so. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Does that sound familiar to you, friend? Jesus said something familiar from the cross, did he not? Luke 23, verse 46, and Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So his disciple Stephen follows suit with the same grace exuded by Christ on the cross. And says, Father, forgive them. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Falling to his knees, Stephen cried out with a loud voice. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. How could Stephen want mercy for those who are so unmerciful? To him. How could he love those who hated him? Why would he plead for his foes? Because he is a learner and a follower of Jesus Christ. And a good one. He is conformed not to the pattern of this world, which says eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and repay evil with evil. He is conformed to the pattern of Christ. And as we have, as we have all seen with the recent trials we've experienced, when you are squeezed, when you are crushed, whatever it is that's inside of you is coming out. And what's inside Stephen is the Spirit of God, the grace of God, the love of God in abundant measure. It will not be overcome by evil. It will overcome evil with good. Stephen's own soul had been conquered by the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And now he prays only 
that others might have the same, the exact same undeserved privilege. And, and beloved, isn't that just what those who have hurt you so deeply need as well? How can we not pray for our enemies? When he said these things, he fell asleep, which is a way of saying he died. But a very peaceful way to say it when you think of how he died. He fell asleep. And that's what we know about Stephen, the first martyr of the church. Now, a pragmatic or a moralizing approach to this text would lead us to a bit of self-examination and application, right? When Stephen was willing to lay down his life for Jesus, am I? Stephen is willing to lay down his life for Jesus, are you? You know, this is what we do a lot of times with the scripture, with our Bible stories. That's why we say, dare to be a Daniel, or dare to be a David, or dare to be a Stephen. And that's not to say that it's wrong or bad to read this story and evaluate our level of, of commitment to Jesus. Of course, how exactly would we follow in those moments? Or how far would we follow, right? We'll go so far, but would we go so far as Stephen? Would we go so far as to lay down our lives? How will we hold up? It's worth asking ourselves if all of a sudden it became a, a extremely dangerous to be a Christian in this country. And you could die because of it. How would you hold up? But remember, as much as we want to go there, it's not a bad thing to go there, but we don't want to miss the point while we go there. Acts is history. Acts is frequently much more descriptive than it is prescriptive. And Luke's aim here is to inform us about the birth, the growth, and the spread, the expansion of the early church. Being a follower of Jesus in Jerusalem was becoming dangerous. Hostility toward the church was mounting. And we are seeing an escalation now in the opposition. And Stephen, and what happened to Stephen, is a pivot point in this story. It is a defining moment. His death for simply being a Christian is the occasion that began the exodus of believers out of the holy city and into the world. The beginning of severe persecution of the church, which answers the question of why and the question of how Christianity moved out beyond Jerusalem and Judea and spread where? Okay, Acts 1.8. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the outermost parts of the world. We've heard this before. And this is what is happening now. Into Samaria and the outermost parts of the world. Literally, the gospel now is being taken into the courts, into the streets, into the homes, into the markets of the Gentiles. Now, we have already seen Stephen's life and death bears a remarkable similarity to the life and death of Jesus. Like Jesus, Stephen was empowered of God, full of faith in the Holy Spirit, grace, 
Like Jesus, Stephen spoke with indisputable wisdom and authority and integrity. Like Jesus, Stephen was tried before religious leaders. Like Jesus, Stephen was accused by false witnesses. Like Jesus, Stephen was charged with blasphemy. Like Jesus, Stephen was questioned by the high priest. Like Jesus, Stephen cried out with a loud voice, committed his spirit to God. Like Jesus, Stephen made a plea for the forgiveness of his enemies. Like Jesus, Stephen was killed. And when the accusers of Christ had him nailed to the cross, they thought it was the end of his life and ministry. And they were wrong on both counts, weren't they? So listen, when the accusers of Stephen pelted his body with rocks until he breathed his last, they may have thought they too could stone Christianity out of existence, stone it to death. But they would be wrong, wouldn't they? Perhaps. Like in the case of Joseph, whom he referenced in his speech. What the enemy intended for evil, God intended for good. It certainly seems so. As from this scene of the crime, the church of God began its journey into the world. Now, we have noted many of the similarities just now between Stephen and Jesus. Let me conclude with this, a couple of important dissimilarities. Unlike Jesus, Stephen did not die to atone for anyone's sins. Stephen was admirable in many ways, but he was not sinless. And like each one of us here, he needed a Savior. He didn't die to pay for anyone's sins like Jesus did. But in a way, he did die so that others fleeing Jerusalem and escaping a similar fate might live. Also, unlike Jesus, Stephen was a martyr. His life was basically taken from him by others. And he handled everything with, with uh, tremendous grace and poise. Right? It's amazing, really. But once in custody, if you think about it, there was little that he would be able to do to change his fate. Stephen was taken Stephen was killed. Jesus was not a martyr. His life was not taken from him. He laid his life down. He gave himself. He came into this world for the express purpose of giving his life to save you. It wasn't nails that held him to the cross. It wasn't Roman soldiers that kept him from leaping off it. It was obedience to the Father driven by love for the world. That is what Jesus did. The only one to live this human life without sin, undeserving of the consequence of sin, which is death, submitted himself to death so that whosoever... I like that part of the King James translation of John 3.16, right? Whosoever, whoever would believe in him might have everlasting life. And we covered this in our biblical counseling conference a little bit this week and what one of our speakers called the choreography of heaven. My life for yours. That's the choreography. That's the dance of heaven. That is... 
the heart of God, that is the ministry of Jesus, my life for yours. I will take your sin. I will give you eternal life. Stephen received this good news, this gospel from Jesus. And it was appropriated to him by faith. And it took root, deep root. And friend, that was when he gave his life up. That time, that day, when he, when he assented to Christ, when he said yes to Jesus, he gave himself up and therefore he became free. So the risk of, of losing that life by being faithful to speaking the truth, it was not hardly a risk to him at all. It wasn't intimidating at all. He belonged to Jesus. He would live for Jesus until Jesus no longer wanted him to live. Amen? He understood that anything worth living for is worth dying for. And that something is Jesus. An early church father named Tertullian would later capture the meaning of deaths like Stephen's when he famously said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That the church of Christ will grow and expand because of the life and martyrdom of Stephen who, like Jesus, finished the work that was given to him and found his reward in heaven. Whatever you may be facing today, beloved, whatever you're up against, whatever you're struggling with, take heart in these words as we close with the, of the Puritan Thomas Brooks. He said, the suffering saint may be assaulted, but not vanquished. He may be troubled, but can never be conquered. He may lose his head, but he cannot lose his crown, which the righteous Lord has prepared and laid up for him. Our Father, we praise you and thank you for our brother Stephen, who so lovingly and so kindly served you, and whom you graciously greeted on his way to his eternal destiny. We thank you for his life and for this reminder of the costliness of obedience. But more so, we thank you for the triumph of faith. As we see that he did not die in defeat and he did not die in vain. And that you had something better planned all along because you are the greatest of all. And nothing coming from your hand will be thwarted. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.